Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 1065 ELMNTFM or 957 ELMNTFM, you can listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right across the country. And also, if you've uh, happened to miss one of our previous uh, interviews, uh, conversations that we've had, and you would like to uh, to either share that with someone, you can always go to our SoundCloud. They are posted on our SoundCloud. Go to our website. You can listen on there as well. And uh, we look uh, now forward to our next guest, which is online with me, Kristen Rene. And uh, Kristen is actually... A Canadian, but uh, visiting uh, from Australia. He, he's been there for about the last 13 years. He's a visiting fellow at the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies, Toronto, and Associate Professor in Medieval History at the University of Queensland. So, uh, Kristen, welcome to the show, first of all. Thanks for having me, David. You know, uh, as I was reading about you and reading what you study and reading about, and the, you know, one of the reasons why you are on the show today is because you study history, and you study an interesting part of history that ties in with the, the, the way the world is situated at the moment, uh, dealing with a pandemic. And I have to tell you that um, I, I was very fascinated by by what you are studying, one, and the things that you have studied. For instance, folks, let me give you a little bit more background about Kristen. So he researches interests in, include medieval canon law, papal legislation, the, Ro- the Roman church and the papacy, monastic exemption, the religious history uh, more generally, and uh, he currently research project examines how memory and heritage have come to be so closely linked in Western culture using the singular and pivotal case of the Benedictine Abbey. And uh, it goes on, but, you know, I, I, I have to, you know, this ties into the Black Plague and, and how there are similarities and things that that, that uh, they dealt with at that time. Uh, one of the things I was very surprised about is how long that went on for, and 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 uh, how it kept coming back in different areas. Uh, that was the one thing. Uh, so uh, again, I say welcome to the show, and I, and I really look forward to uh, delving into some of these things with you. Thank you. Me too. Now, before we do that, though, if you don't mind, can I ask how? How do you get interested? How did you get interested in wanting to study medieval history and, and history in general? Yeah, well, I'd say it's a common, a common question I always struggle to answer, but I think <laughs> if you'd ask any academic, we have very similar responses, and it often comes down to being inspired as an undergraduate student. You know, I, I come from southern Alberta, born and raised in Lethbridge, Mm. And uh, I studied my first degree there in history and uh, found a passion for medieval history in particular because of one professor. And um, from there, it sort of led to a journey and it's taken me to a number of countries I didn't ex- anticipate visiting, um, you know, from studies in, uh, in Scotland and England. And I came back to Canada for postdoctoral studies. And then my, the job has taken me to New Zealand in the first instance. And as you mentioned, I've been based in Australia for the last 13 years. So really, it's just sort of an intellectual curiosity and, and a passion that was ignited by some really good teachers. Now, as I, as you said, it was is ignited by some teachers, but there must have been something about it that attracted you specifically to that time period. Yeah, I've always had 
a, a, a fascination with religious history in particular. And, and I'm not, uh, personally speaking, I'm not religious in any way. And, and people often assume I am because I study the church. Mm. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in the history of the papacy, you know, the Western world's oldest institution. Mm. Um, and I've studied various aspects of the papacy. And as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, canon law in particular, the law of the church has been a research theme of mine for over the last decade as well. And I can't put a finger on exactly why, you know, yes, as I said, I was inspired by some teachers at university and have continued to be inspired by, by colleagues and peers who work in the field. Um, but it's just a fascination, I suppose, with, with how, what inspires people, you know, the sort of the reason and rationality of religion, religious thought, religious behavior, what motivates people and the underlying theology and, and ideology. Well, certainly it is uh, the papacy, as you mentioned, it's something that had a huge a huge impact on the world. Uh, the other thing is I was reading, um, uh, you know, the, the, the article that you wrote on the Black Death and, and also uh, about the, this particular situation we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. I, I started to think, yeah, I guess uh, many of these, these uh, religious folk uh, were, were probably one of the best uh, resources we have for actually knowing what went on in the history. They, they recorded a lot of this in, in sometimes great detail. Yeah, in, with particular reference to the Black Death, you know, middle of the 14th century, um, it's worth pointing out, I mean, we, we only know about it, as you said, because of the records that were taken at the time. Mm. But then we have on the flip side a, a big problem. I, like, many people looking back on the Middle Ages would say that we have very few records of the past, and we're lucky mm. for what we have. Mm. And I'd be one of those people to say, yes, we are lucky. We have some really long narrative accounts about what happened with the arrival of the Black Death, which helps us understand what contemporaries at the time thought about the origins of the disease, the transmission of the disease, and and various other theories, which give us incredible insight into the moral framework of the time that help us understand even ideas of, of medicine, of science, of public health, and so on. Um, but what's important to note about that is that this is a, a religious world, you know, it's a universally religious world. And so the sort of cause and effect of the arrival of a disease like the Black Death or the buponic plague is attributed first and foremost to the sins of mankind mm-hmm. and, the, and the wrath of God. So when we look at these sources, and, and I've been teaching on the subject for over a decade as well, and when I study these year after year with, with my students, um, the one common theme that often comes out is really trying to understand how they fashioned the history. Mm. So we, we sort of have to, I suppose it's a way of saying, you know, take it with a grain of salt, that when mm. you're reading these accounts, which the more you read, the more similar they look to each other, and right? that's important to know. They follow almost a pattern or a literary trope. Mm. And the ultimate outcome is that we have, in the 21st century, an imperfect understanding of that past. And we have a very, what we're left with is a very dystopic vision, you know, a very negative view of what happened at the time and the cause and effect of what happened at the time. And the downside of that, and historians are starting to work on this more and more now and and over the last decade or two, is that it it sort of leaves out the individual. You know, we don't have the experience of, of, of a person in a particular locality. And we often don't have any, any idea about what we're seeing more in today's pandemic, you know, the power of community, uh, the the helping of others, you know, neighbors helping each other, Mm. families helping each other, uh, the power of resiliency. We don't see that in the records of the 14th century. We, we can assume, you know, that past societies experienced disease and experienced incredible mortality rates and the fear and the trauma that, associated, that can be associated with this crisis. You know, we can 
think that, you know, the human behavior is, is similar in some ways to what it is today, but we can't know for certain without the historical record. Yeah, yeah, some good points for sure. When you look, though, at history in general, and, and specifically also in, in terms of what we're dealing with now, um, what are the, <laughs> you know, again, I, I was thinking about this as I was reading, and I thought, it must be fascinating for someone in your, in, in your line of work when you see something happening currently that, that just jumps out at you as, ah, oh, I know this, I've seen this before, I recognize this from hundreds of years ago. Um, we're, we're, we're at it again, sort of. It, it's, the recognition is kind of rewarding, but it's also disturbing right? mm. because over the last two months, I've, I've just also been noting sort of the transformation in the various news stories that have come out, the various mm. pieces written by historians like myself about it. And we're always looking for those connections and those analogies. But at the same time, historians are being very cautious and rightly so about drawing explicit connections when we know that there are some great differences between you know, the 21st century societies, the 21st century world, and the 14th century world as well. Well, I, I can well imagine, for sure. Um, however, having said that, what are some of the things that you have, um, that you have recognized um, in terms of just the way this has rolled out, how it, how it came to be, for instance? Sure. I think, first and foremost, I go back to this idea of human behavior. There seems to be, at least from my point of view, just the patterns of human behavior. And we've sort of had these phases of reactions, you know, the news of this sort of unknown virus. And, and, and we had a very ill-formed idea um, you know, since sort of late December, early January, about what this thing was and what it could do. And the, the way the societies and various nations have reacted to that is, is in, at times starkly reminiscent of my understanding of the Black Death in the 14th century, particularly if we look at the feelings of panic and helplessness um, that exist and that we sort of are seeing manifesting in our, in our current world compared to those in the 14th century. So at, at the first instance, I, what I'm sort of always thinking about is the first phase is that there's the arrival of, of the unknown, right? So in the Middle Ages, you can attribute the Black Death and its arrival to, okay, the sins of mankind. You know, the reasons are different in the modern world, of course, right? Without the sort of predominant religious framework. Um, but the re immediate reaction is to try to understand what's going on, right? And so we are, in a way, also relying, much like our medieval, uh, medieval predecessors, relying on experts of the sort for a better understanding and a better knowledge on the origins of spread of disease. So in the medieval and in the modern example, I'd say, they're both are very similar. We turn to scholars of all descriptions, right? Not only, um, you know, those in the medical field or epidemiologists, but we're of course, increasingly reliant on economists for helping us understand what's happening now and what's going to happen in the future. Of course, the role of doctors is incredibly prominent in the modern world, but it also was in the Middle Ages with the arrival and the treatment of a disease. You know, they turned to physicians. And then governments and civil authorities at all levels. You know, we, we in the modern world, but also in the Middle Ages, you know, we, all of these activities are turning to scholars for some sort of way of understanding in a, you know, a disaster response and also a disaster recovery. So that is to say, and I think these parallels are definitely there across the centuries, that we want to figure out now as much as 
our medieval predecessors how best to deal with disease, how to mitigate the spread of disease, and ultimately, ultimately you know, to avoid widespread fear, trauma, and death. Yeah, um, you know, tying in the religious aspect, and as you say, it was very, uh, very much uh, from that perspective that we do get a lot of this history that was written in around the, the time of the Black Death because uh, of the people writing it. Um, I, I did read something uh, recently that, that did come out uh, from the Pope, and I'm not sure if you saw this or not, but I was very surprised to see it. Um, because the Pope made a reference to the COVID-19 uh, and the Earth uh, as, as a reaction that the Earth was, was having as a way um, to uh, just uh, either, either combat or, or uh, look, you know, it was something to do with maybe the, um, the, 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 the climate. And I'm, I'm not exactly remembering what it was. I don't know if you saw that or not, but I was just surprised that, that the Pope made such a statement at all. And I had to go back and verify that he actually did. And I, and, and I looked it up and I went, wow, he did. He did say this. I, I, didn't, I didn't see that. And I, I, can, uh, I can't kind of fully imagine the connection there. I mean, I'm wondering if it has something to do with just the healing of the earth mm. and, and the natural cycles. Mm-hmm. But what it's reminded me of immediately are some medieval and early modern theories that, that come out that are a bit probably um, disturbing to modern sensibilities, but I'm thinking especially of something that Machiavelli wrote in the early 16th century mm. in a commentary on Livy, that there's this idea that floods, famines, and diseases, um, like, like the plague that had uh, ravaged Europe in the 14th century, were necessary evils. Mm. That there's this idea of balance, and certainly in, in sort of a medical understanding of the period, in the Middle mm. Ages and the early modern period, the idea of balance um, goes back to ancient medicine uh, and uh, balance in the body, balance of the four humors, balance of the the earth, and even in a, in a very Christian context. And maybe mm. this is what the Pope is referring to, and in, in, a, in a much deeper sort of theological scale, mm. um, is the balance of the universe, and that we are sort of inhabitants of this earth, and uh, it requires a balance. And and probably this is stuff he's been writing about aside from the pandemic as well. That there are gross inequalities across the world that he's been trying to address. And I think there's no doubt that now, as well as in the Middle Ages, that the arrival of a, of a disease um, exposes the cracks and exposes the depths of the crisis that existed before mm-hmm. a virus came along. That, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting perspective. And I'm, and I'm wondering if... Uh, uh, yeah, I'm wondering if, if you see that kind of thing reflected in what you have studied over time? I think it's something I wrote about in, in the, I've written a couple conversation pieces on this in the last few months, so I can't remember exactly which one it was in, but mm. uh, there's definitely, you know, this idea of social dislocation, and we're seeing it at various levels. I mean, over the weekend in Toronto, I mean, the whole nation is aware of sort of the stories coming out of Trinity Bellwoods Park as mm. an example. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea of, and that's just one minor example of many that exists in sort of our, you know, our environments. But there is social dislocation. You know, we have this sort of, we're giving up of, of civil liberties in the name of, of public health and in order to protect everyone. Um, <laughs> you know, but, it, but it's temporary. And that's something I wrote about. These, these cracks in society are exposed, um, but they do... The, the, go back to the parallel question you asked me as well. I mean, in, with reference in particular to the Black Death in the 14th century, that it 
there is an ongoing historical debate that goes back to the late 19th century, which talks about, you know, whether the Black Death, in fact, was a catalyst for social revolution, whether it sort of was the beginning uh, of the of the end. Was it the end of the Middle Ages because it led to a, a crumbling of very rigid social structures? Mm. And there's a lot going on in the 14th century, which is why this is still an ongoing scholarly debate. But there's also this idea that I see a lot of parallels in the daily news that um, you know, the arrival of a virus, whether it's a bubonic plague or whether it's the coronavirus, um, is accelerating change that was already there, social change that was already there. It's pointing out all the areas where things just weren't working in society. And so it's led, no doubt, in the present day and no doubt in past societies to all sorts of disruptions to what we might call you know, normal life. Um, these were very real in the past as now, and, uh, and they were prolonged. And one aspect that fascinates me, uh, which is completely you know, historically undocumented, is, is to think about in the past the psychological impact of what's going on. And um, because we look back on it, of course, and we can piece together the historical sources and the documents that we have, we can try to cut through the sort of literary tropes to understand how people really experienced um, such widespread disease, such widespread death, um, in order to understand how they recovered from it. And of course, we're very much interested in that aspect uh, in the modern world. Mm. Uh, the, the, the word you, you use there about cracks in the system and pointing out the, the, you know, these, these gaps and things, um, I've heard that uh, a couple of times now, actually. Uh, do you think that in this time, in this day and age, that, that there is greater ability, greater understanding, greater uh, potential for us to, to see those gaps differently than in the past and, and correct them and try to make changes? I mean, we, we just look at, for instance, the, the frontline workers, and we mm -hmm. see how you know, many of them who have been getting ill and putting their, their life on the line, and you know, just looking at the financial discrepancy of, of the people that are putting themselves there that are not getting compensated accordingly to the kind of work that they're doing. That is, is one little thing that, that has jumped out, I think, in, in everybody's mind now about, you know, that wasn't even on the radar before. Uh, that's a really tough question to ask. I mean, I, I've been thinking about it, I think, like everybody who's been experiencing this. And, and I worry, I think, like a lot of people that, uh, you know, another example that's in the news daily, the, 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 the problems in the system of long-term aged care homes and what mm. this will look like in the aftermath. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're reading about the gradual reopenings in sort of every nation and even just things we used to take for granted, like the restaurant business, what restaurants will even exist after this, any retail stores, you know, the ones that can survive economically, will they exist? And, and sometimes I get down like everyone thinking about, you know, will we ever be able to go to a concert again? Or what will it look like if it resumes <laughs> or to a movie theater? I think I heard that on the news today. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and I think about my own kids and what's school going to look like in September, you know, if, if it restarts, you know, what will it look like in September? Um, those, those things sort of worry me. I'm not sure that really answered your question directly, but I, and I can't think of, I mean, there are some parallels, I suppose, if you want me to draw again with the Black Death, that there were mm. probably the most disturbing accounts, I would say, are, are in a sense, really, again, driven by human nature and human behavior. And, and we've seen that to an extent, uh, not in Canada, thankfully but in other countries where we've heard reports of uh, you know, so many dead bodies that they, they had to uh, 
uh, well, bury them quickly or bury them covertly in the middle of the night or find alternate arrangements. And of course, people around the world have been affected um, in terms of caring for loved ones or the inability to care for loved ones in their last days. And um, of course, the funeral services, uh, which are an important part for, for many people emotionally, um, yeah. uh, or haven't been allowed to proceed or with very, very strong you know, restrictions if they do proceed. And there, there are medieval examples of, examples of this too, that almost every chronicler in the 14th century is referring about how many dead there are, that there are so many dead that they're scarcely a- able to bury them. Mm. And there are accounts in particular regions of precisely this, that there, there was a firm understanding that the disease was, was spreading in certain ways and that contagion you know, was, was a big problem. Of course, the epidemiology of it was nothing like today's, today's understanding. But it, it was well known that if contact was dangerous and that the clothes that somebody was wearing or a sick person was wearing could, could cause all sorts of problems. So that changed the burial practice very quickly. And also in a world where um, burial was a religious ceremony for everyone. Mm. And in fact, you know, consecrated ground was necessary for burial. That changed a lot of sort of civic civic ordinances, let's say, for um, opening up new burial grounds because they didn't have enough. But every step of the way, and maybe this is a bit, a bit of off target here, a little bit of a tangent, but every step of the way, you know, everyone involved from taking care of the sick, taking care of the dying, to the, the priest who would normally preside over the burial service or the funeral service, um, this goes back to this idea of social disruption and social dislocation that there are again, these disturbing accounts of how people abandon their responsibilities. And mm-hmm. I think we're seeing that in the modern world as well. Maybe that does go back to your original question that, you know, we can in Canada, I think I'm very thankful to be here at the moment and, uh, and to see what the governments are doing and how they're responding at a municipal level or provincial level and, and higher. Um, but that wasn't always the case from what I can tell in the medieval evidence that there were, good rulers and ones who recognized the dangers and ones who recognized ultimately that to mitigate disaster was a benefit to themselves primarily, um, but also to the health of the economy and to the health of society. Well, yeah, the Black Death certainly seemed like a real nasty, uh, nasty uh, plague, that's for sure, for, from the little I've read about it, even spreading from humans and, uh, and to cattle and to animals uh, people cared for, uh, needed uh, for sustenance, et cetera, et cetera. My guest is Kristen René. He is a visiting fellow at the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies in Toronto and the Associate Professor in Medieval History at the University of Queensland talking about, of course, uh, COVID-19, but in this particular situation, talking and looking at it from uh, somewhat of a historical perspective. Please don't go away. We will be right back here on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this. So stay tuned. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Uh, I just want to jump in and let everyone know you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. My guest is Kristen René. He is a visiting fellow at the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies in Toronto and the Associate Professor in Medieval History at the University of Queensland. He's uh, now, I guess, residing in uh, in Australia. However, here and visiting, uh, been in the uh, in Australia down under for about thirteen years. But a uh, pleasure to have him back here and visiting, and a pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, 
Christian Zipsy for I, I gave the ID there. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you touched on this, I think, a little bit, and that is um, uh, you know, the, the corruption that also took place and how you know, we're seeing some elements of, uh, of the way people can manipulate stories, manipulate things for their own benefit. Um, and uh, I, I read a few, you know, in, I think in the story you wrote about, about that, that also happened in the Black Plague. Uh, people that were, I guess, just worried about the bottom line and, uh, and put everyone at risk. I mean, the most famous example of that, which I'd say that sort of every school child sort of learns, you know, the Black Death is pervasive in that respect, right? And, you know, we might learn about it in, in school and then um, and read about it. It's, it's quite vivid in the popular imagination. Um, and there are accounts, yes, of, of uh, civil authorities or state authorities um, taking advantage. And I suppose the most famous one is, is the one I wrote about, the, uh, the Statute of Labourers uh, or the Ordinance of Labour, the, both the Statute and the Ordinance of Labourers by the English government in, in an attempt to really freeze uh, the the wages of skilled laborers and uh, this was sort of coming at, at the tail end of the, the pandemic in the mid 14th century um, but they wanted to freeze the, the the wages to a pre-plague rate as though in order to maintain the status quo and it, it looks it's much more complicated than that and England was also in the middle of a very long the hundred years war with France and um, tax was a big problem <laughs> In that country as well, but you know the, the arrival of the Black Death contributed to what looks like, in hindsight, you know, very heavy-handed um, maneuvers by by the king at that time to to try to keep things as they were. But what's important to note, I guess, from the modern perspective, is that this was again, as I mentioned earlier on, a very rigid uh, society. Uh, you know, incredible incredible disparities in terms of um, economics and the roles of individuals in society and. As every sort of student of the Middle Ages will learn, there are those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. Mm. And the majority of the population in this very subsistence uh, level agricultural world of of medieval Europe were those who who worked. And, you know, you need to work, you need to till the land in order to survive, in order to feed your family, in order to feed your community. And there are reasons why governments are intervening in this way. And yes, it looks on the one hand, and I think there are some differences to draw here, with the modern world. It looks like uh, it is for the benefit of society, you know, to try to control what's going on in the economy and to try to mitigate the spread of disease is all about social cohesion and social order. And that is definitely there and it's incredibly important. But it also looks, if you're reading it through a very critical or cynical lens, as though governments at the time were trying to take advantage and trying to keep people in their place. And that's exactly how it's usually interpreted, um, to make sure that there was no social mobility, no attempt for people to take opportunities or to take advantage of what was an incredibly high death rate in order to better themselves or to better their own social situations. Um, you know, again, I, I, you just mentioned about uh, liberties and, and uh, having the state uh, sort of imposing, uh, you know, restrictions on people. And, and there was, of course, we're seeing that as well here, even though it is temporary. It's temporary measures to try and mitigate. Um, and, uh, and things, even then, in the Black Plague, there were, there were, there were those people that were of uh, different minds, just like you were saying. There are people that were working. There were people that were um, 
again, trying to take advantage of the, the situation. And uh, it just, uh, it's just the way it is, I guess. It keeps going. I, I guess as we're, we're just starting to round out our time here, uh, Kristen, what, what are some of the main takeaways that you, that you would look, looking back at history, looking back at through these, these times that, that we should maybe, that you'd like people to be aware of? That's a tough question, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like that's cast too much responsibility on me. But, um, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, certainly as we, we started our conversation, you know, very much talking about the, the parallels. But as, as I also said, there's always a, uh, always a sort of a caution um, mm. to draw in these parallels between what's happening now and what happened in, in the 14th century. Um, but nevertheless, I always think about the recovery phase, and that's what everybody's sort of looking to mm. now, and everybody wants to know exactly how did past societies recover. And, and over the last two months, I've noticed at, at the outset there were a lot of a lot of articles, a lot of uh, opinion pieces being written about Justinianic plague, or the plague of Athens even earlier, or the Black Death. Um, but we've sort of become more modern in our perspective lately, which I find just curious. Um, and then most of the analogies are between now and 100 years ago with the Spanish flu. Mm. And, and I, I don't know exactly what the reasons for that, but I think there is, is a certain resonance to what happened uh, after the First World War, and it's a society that looks a little more similar to the one now, when, whereas the Black Death was so long ago and such a different world in many ways mm -hmm. that the, the analogies are maybe less relevant as we start to think about how do we come out of this? How do we re recover? I mean, the one thing I'd like to point out to my students and anyone who will listen is that the bubonic plague, when we talk about the Black Death, is this foreign thing that devastated Europe, I mean, it's always worth noting that it still exists, right? Yeah. It is endemic in society. And, right. you know, the World Health Organization has all sorts of statistics about, uh, I don't know, my recollection of it is the most recent outbreak in Madagascar only about five years ago. Um, they keep account, like many diseases, of how many people um, contracted and, and the death toll. And I think this always surprises my students in particular when they think this is you know, it's a little more real. It still exists. And mm -hmm. um, we're making those comparisons today with uh, whether we will have to live with this disease forever, whether we can sort of get rid of it uh, in some way. But to answer your question, maybe a little more directly, it's about recovery. And, and I think maybe a positive thing that I like to think about is that um, plagues past show us that, yes, this recovery is difficult and it can be slow and very gradual in some cases. But there are also some encouraging stories of swift recoveries, especially in the economy. And the mm. one thing that we just never know, and this fascinates me beyond belief, is exactly how people lived with that idea. Because, you know, the Black Death is well known, sort of 1347 to 1351, and the estimates of how many people were killed very widely. It affected some people greatly and, and other people less so. But it came back in waves, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's not just the mid 14th century, but there's a second wave in the 1360s, two waves, in fact, and then 1370s and the 1390s. And there are accounts in various parts of Europe in the, throughout the 1400s, 1500s, and into the 1600s of, of plague arriving almost every year. And these are waves and recurring waves and patterns of bubonic plague. But we don't have the same sort of account of how bad was it and how, how did people cope with it? Hmm. So maybe it's kind of the coping strategy that also interests me here. We, we know and we're preparing maybe for a second wave arriving in our world today. And we don't really know what that means yet, but we hope to be better prepared. And, and we talk a lot in the modern world about how to take care of ourselves, which is I think, something that's probably very different to the medieval example. Um, no doubt people were worried, and no doubt uh, the great death toll had incredible impact on people's well-being. 
um, to say nothing of just their basic survival and the ability to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and having you on the show today, and we really thank you for taking the time to do so. Yeah, my pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. That is uh, Christian René, and he is a visiting fellow at the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies in Toronto and the Associate Professor of Medieval History at the University of Queensland. It was a pleasure to have him on the show talking about, of course, uh, like everyone is talking about, uh, COVID-19, but in this particular situation, talking and looking at it from uh, somewhat of a historical perspective. That's this part of the program. Please don't go away. We will be right back here on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this. So stay tuned. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 E-L-M-N-T-F-M or 95.7 E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Also, if you've missed uh, one of our interviews or conversations that you want to go back and re-listen to, you can do so by going to our SoundCloud and on the website. And also, if you have a question or a query or uh, you want to make a comment, please do so. You can get a hold of me at dmoses at elmntfm.ca. I'll be happy to get your email. I'd like to welcome our next guest to the show. It is Dolores Gull, and Dolores is a beat artist, and it's a pleasure to welcome her to the show today. Dolores, welcome. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and Dolores, of course, we're, we're, we're talking to you about uh, some beadwork that you did uh, because COVID-19 has, has, you know, limited us in, in many things uh, that we uh, normally might want to do, get out and about. But um, it also has, I guess, helped in some ways in terms of your own uh, beadwork because you took upon yourself to start creating some masks. And in particular, you created this this uh, wonderful mask uh, that, if I, if you don't mind me using the word wonderful in terms of how it was inspired and what you've created, because the image that I saw online certainly is very striking. And um, it has to do with a mask that you made after seeing something that came out of the, uh, um, the original uh, uh, the, the, the Black Plague and, and, and what uh, uh, people would wear to try and protect themselves from, from getting uh, infected with the Black Plague. Um, so, um, so welcome, Dolores. Thank you. Now, I understand it was, was it your daughter that, that kind of brought this to your attention? Yes, she did. Uh, I was sitting here at my my studio, my, where I where I'm always uh, beating, making masterpieces, and <laughs> just bringing stuff to life. And then she came up to me and, uh, "Hey, mom, um, I think I think you should uh, make a mask, and uh, I think you should join this group, and you should uh, make a mask." <laughs> and, uh, and she was showing me this group, and. Uh, and uh, it was called. It's called Breathe Group mm. on uh, Facebook. So mm. I went to go check it out, and then um, I was really, uh, I was really moved by these uh, individuals that started putting in uh, their masks uh, in, into the Facebook group, Breathe. And and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna do this. So I started researching on this ma- uh, on uh, 
on a certain uh, piece that I wanted to make. And I wanted to uh, bring it to life. Um, mm. I wanted to have it, uh, meaning mm. um, in this pandemic that we're in. And uh, so I started, when uh, my daughter had this, uh, had this wild idea that that I should uh, make this mask, and as I and she was showing me, and I was like, "Oh my god!" So I just, I just started creating the mask, and uh, but before I I started creating the mask, I I researched on this mask, uh, and what it meant to me. Um, so I started looking into it, and the fact that it is our first time again in this uh, worldwide that we're all. Uh, all in, uh, in this pandemic that we're uh, social distancing and uh, staying away from each other, um, just basically going into uh, grocery stores that were lining up and things like that. So, so I I researched on this mask and uh, you know uh, more than the hundred years ago was the last time when we're in this pandemic where uh, these uh, um, last time I seen this kind of uh, where I seen this mask was uh, on a play doctor who wore it and uh, he stuffed uh, medicines in his beak just to avoid the smell where mm. where he walked across where uh, uh, where the virus was mm. and where, where he had to walk across well be around the people were dying mm. so he he stuffed the medicines in his beak and what when i read that and what came to mind was um stuffing our own medicines that we use mm. the sage the cedar just uh basically medicines from the land so when when i read that and it just all came together and when I seen that mask with the long beak, it reminded me of the ceremonies that we attend, uh, the Sundance ceremony. Um, there's a ceremony that well, it's so much reminding me of. So I, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to make this. And and when I made the mask, I had to um, include include the thunder beam the lightning beam on the mm. in between of the the mat the the, the long beak mm. uh, so i added both of the lightning beams on each side just to remind us that uh to what that to keep us in balance um when when we see it when we wear the mask and uh the flowers i wanted i wanted to remind us that uh that where to find the medicine is from the land. Mm. And if you need healing, is and you, all you gotta do is just go out in the land and the land will give you your your answers that you seek. And um, and, and I had to add the three uh, circles uh, on each side uh, to be able to breathe too as well. Mm. And also to remind me um, to keep life in, uh, simple. Mm. Um, and that's why I added the three circles. Was was to it's about life. And you may can you tell us about the materials you use to make it? Oh yes. Um, so I used the seed beads. Um, 
Uh, I want to bring back the seed beads. Uh, I, I noticed that a lot of people tend to want to use the other the other kind of beads. Uh, and I want to bring back the seed beads. Uh, uh, and, uh, and also, um, the, 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 I used the, the smoke tan caribou hide that my mother gifted me. Mm. And she always gives me, some, uh, she always gives me a, uh, smoke tan caribou hide and uh, and she knows that I I work with it all the time and uh, and I and I'm really grateful when she does this for me and uh, she's all the way up in the up in bay right now uh, uh, spring harvesting um, she, that's where she's at right now and uh, and I, I also included the feathers along the side and it was a gift from my grandfather uh they're they're snowy owl feathers and mm. uh and it has a very uh, significant um, um meaning to me and uh because he gave me teachings too about uh, about the land and about uh when you work with caribou hide um uh he taught me a, a few things how to how to how to uh make it uh, the stages, the different stages when you make the smoke down caribou hide. Mm. And, um, and I just had to use all of it. And it has a very special meaning to me. You know, when, when you, uh, when you, you mentioned it has special meaning, uh, it, it is a very striking image. Even, even when it was used by the doctors who wore it in the bubonic plague, um, wore it for, for, as you pointed out, they would put uh, aromic plants and things and spices in there to, for, for, to help in that regard. But it was a very striking image. And like you said, it's like a bird's beak that comes out from the face. And, um, and it still has, when you look at it and what you created... Um, it, it is very striking, and it, it and I'm wondering, is this, you know, to make something of a mask in this regard? It, was there ever a time, do you know, in your own people's history, um, where masks were created or used in any way? Um, you know, you know, um, when I first submitted the 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 mask to to the breathe group. Mm. Uh, people should check it out uh, anyway <laughs> yeah let me jump in you can check it out at, at face the Facebook group breathe online if you go there and check it out you'll see what we're talking about and and the reason I guess I was asking that is because it reminds me very much of the West Coast masks you know that you see oh, okay yeah yeah oh I understand what you yeah I, I know what you mean yes I, I seen those masks too as well um, now can can I ask how you you affixed it and how you uh, attached it to the face? How did you? What kind of a securing did you do? Um, I used um, uh, interfacing and interfacing inside mm. the mask, mm. Mm. and um, it's like it's like a cloth using a, a glue to the uh, to the caribou hide, and it makes mm. it stable. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's and what was what, when you completed it? Uh, yeah. What was the what was the re, what was the reaction you got? Oh my gosh, um, a lot of a, a lot of feelings. I, I felt a lot, a lot of feelings, uh, emotions when mm. I first uh, uh, put it on. Mm. Um, 
I, I went running to my daughter's room and showed her, and I was like, "My wait, look, look, I made it. I finished it." <laughs> um, it was really a, it was a fun day, you know. It was, uh, I was really proud, and I, and now you know later. Uh, so when I finished it that morning, I I started preparing my. Uh, uh, preparing the photo shoot mm. the next day, and I, mm -hmm. I wanted to wait till it was a nice day. So, uh, so me and my daughter went out to uh, the hiking trail by Hershey Lake. So, we went over there, and uh, my daughter likes taking photos. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, so I, 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 I wore a skirt, a ribbon skirt that Delena White uh, made. Mm from the United States and I, I had to get that skirt from her and uh, so once I got it and I put it I put the whole piece together and I was like oh my god let's mm. go do this so we went on the uh, went on the walking trail and uh, so we started getting ready and uh, it, it, the photo shoot took about one hour and it was really fun and uh, and, and I and my daughter's really gifted at her uh, photography and she's only 15 and she's, wow. she's she really enjoys photography. Well, between the two of you, you created a couple of really wonderful photos for people to look and see the, the work that you did uh, creating the mask and also putting the entire, uh, as you said, the, the, the skirt and the whole outfit that you, you created for this uh, is very striking. And it's, it's you know, in, in a time when, when we're looking at, um, uh, at lockdowns and a pandemic that has created... Uh, uh, misfortune for many people it's very it, it's a little bit of of a beauty to see and and um just a, a striking image that that you know we can go to and uh, and congratulations on, on on doing that thank you thank you now, Dolores, uh, you are a member of the Winusk First Nation in Northern Ontario, but you, you're residing in Timmins. Where, where is Winusk First Nation? Where, where would that be close to? That's, um, well, Winusk flooded in 1986, and mm. that's where I'm originally from. Mm. And uh, so when Winusk flooded, we had to relocate. Right. Uh, and then uh, Pewanek was built. And uh, that's where I'm, I'm originally from, from okay. Pewanek, Ontario. It's way up on the Hudson Bay coast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, on the Ontario side. And you've been beating for about 30 years. And for some reason, I don't know why, Dolores, but I get the feeling we met somewhere. And I'm not, I'm not sure why or how, but I just get that feeling. When I heard your name, it just struck me that way. Yeah, well, maybe we have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is Dolores Gull. She is a bead maker and a bead uh, person who has been beading for about 30 years. She made this uh, really incredible mask. It's like a beaks mask. And you can see it online if you go to Facebook, the Facebook group Breathe, along with some other indigenous masks that people have made as well. Very creative and very, uh, very beautiful and very practical, but uh, creative and, and useful at the same time. So, Dolores, what, what kind of feedback or what kind of things did you hear back from other people once it went online and people saw what you did? What, what kind of things did you hear from people? 
to be honest, um, I got scared, you know, uh, it really scared me because uh, my daughter kept on coming to see me where I was working in my studio and mom, our, the work that we did, it just went viral. She told me, <laughs> what are you talking about? What are, what are you talking? What does that mean? <laughs> viral. Don't you know viral? It's like uh, getting so many, uh, getting many shares and a lot of people are sharing our, the work that we did. And, and I, it's still, I still didn't catch on until <laughs> she, she showed me and then, uh, and I was just really blown away. Mm. Really. Uh, I'm just really grateful. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, you you guys have made these masks. What are you What are you What are you hoping that uh, as the group? Uh, do you have any indication about what what people are hoping that that the good that they will do with these masks? Um, I know that there is supposed there's 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 supposed to be an exhibition that's mm. supposed to be held. Uh, I can't remember because uh, mm-hmm. I've been getting a lot of requests for uh, I've been getting requests to do interviews. Right. Uh, and I'm just kind of getting mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. That's quite all, all right and quite understandable. So not to worry at all. Uh, what other what other kind of work do, that you do you do, Dolores? Um, what kind of beadwork have you worked on? Um, I, I make a variety of things. Um, uh, uh, my childhood friend that I grew up with, uh, we do an indigenous fashion show here in Timmins. Mm. Uh, we did our first one last year, and uh, we we showcase uh, the kind of work that we do, like um, be handmade beaded uh, crafts such as purses, uh, coats, um, mucklucks, uh, mitts, gloves, uh, hats. Oh, oh, my gosh. Just we make just anything. No, I'm, I'm, and I'm actually looking at a couple of those purses that you did, and they're quite beautiful. They're at lovely, lovely work. So congratulations. Um, and there's also at the uh, there's another great picture of you with your uh, your your beak mask on, um, and the 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 whole outfit that you put together for for that photo shoot so once again congratulations on that and can and 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 continued luck on everything that you're doing as well Dolores thank you it's been our pleasure to have Dolores Gull on the show as I mentioned she is a uh, a traditional bead worker and has been doing that for about 30 years she's got some great work to show online and that's been uh, a pleasure to have her on the show and to talk about this and uh, that's our show for today so thank you for listening And we'll see you next time right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.